summertime speakers at Rare Book School, and I, along with the rest of them, often present formal papers. Too few of us are here in the winter for anything like that. So what I want to do instead this evening is to tell you a story. Uh, in case anybody cares, which I can't imagine, there actually is a formal paper with all the proper scholarly accoutrements, including compound complex sentences, appropriately sesquipedalian vocabulary, and footnotes that run on at nauseating length, underlying the story I'm about to tell. But this is not it. My story concerns a novel that some of you may know. It's Walter Van Tilburg Clark's tale set in Nevada during the 1880s, The Oxbow Incident first published by Bennett Cerf and Donald Klopfer at Random House in 1940. It was, in 1943, turned into a movie directed by William Wellman with Dana Andrews, Henry Fonda, and Anthony Quinn. More of you, I suspect, are likely to have seen the movie than to have read the book, although the book survives. In fact, it has entered that gloomy twilight zone occupied by tales deemed fit to be studied in high school. If there is a literary equivalent of a fate worse than death, this must be it. On the other hand, such a fate means that should you happen to feel inspired to do so, you can easily find the book. A mass market paperback signet classic, it comes equipped with an afterword for students written by Walter Prescott Webb an otherwise eminent historian of the American West. Otherwise eminent because I think he follows conventional wisdom about the book in this afterward and is thus completely wrong about it. My story begins with my work. At my university, I am a librarian who orders books and manuscripts for and tries to help readers using a largish rare book and manuscript collection. I also teach courses in English literature, a subject in which some very foolish people once granted me a doctoral degree. Many years later, this background convinced another very foolish person that I ought to spend a bit of time not only ordering rare books and manuscripts for my university's rare book collection, but also modern literature in the English language for its general circulating collections as well. Those of you who don't have my sort of background may wonder why this notion strikes me as foolish. I'm not displaying false modesty when I use that word. My dissertation concerned a 16th century English sonnet sequence. Those of you who specialize in Inglit will know that such a topic makes me a specialist not even in Renaissance English literature, but in non-dramatic Renaissance English literature. Non-dramatic in this context means, by the way, not only not drama, but also not prose. In theory, I do know a great deal about poetry of the later 16th century, and that theory is even partly true, although I actually know more about poetry of the earlier 17th century. Because I thought it might be a good idea to know something about the context surrounding what I'm supposed to know about, I did study the drama and prose of both the 16th and the 17th centuries. And I took courses in medieval and earlier 18th and earlier 18th century English literature. 
So what's wrong with this picture? That's a good background from which to prepare to order books for a large library in English language literature, right? Wrong. Literature in English includes, for instance, literature in Anglo-Saxon and non-Chaucerian Middle English, as well as, since they tell me that there is such stuff, literature that postdates the deaths of Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope. But I've taken very few such cor courses in such literature and cannot be said to know anything about the period from 1750 to the present that the merest clod would consider respectable. My father taught American literature. My form of Oedipal Rebellion, as I've remarked on other occasions, was to study English literature. I was, after all, a very good boy. Still in all, I know nothing in any formal sense about American literature. One needs to recall that the UK and the US don't constitute all of English language literature, and I happen also to know next to nothing about writings that originate in Canada, the Caribbean, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, India, or Australia, and New Zealand. When you add it all up, it comes to a lot of exclusions, more exclusions than there are inclusions. But I'm an intrepid fellow, and so when this responsibility became mine, I set about to read at least a little bit in areas in which my ignorance was vast. I remember being greatly annoyed when, early on, during this period of remedial self-education, Jane Tompkins published West of Everything, a book on the American Western. Good grief, I remember thinking, do I have to know about that crap too? Her book was published by Oxford, which, at the time, I still believed meant something. It certainly, it certainly did mean that the genre of the Western was now open to reputable scholarly investigation. Perhaps one needed to know something about Westerns, and Penn is, after all, the university that produced Zane Grey, the dental school alumnus who, among his other literary triumphs, wrote Riders of the Purple Sage. So I read Tompkins. To my amazement, hers was a good book, not a bad one. To my still greater amazement, she convinced me that I ought to read the odd western now and again. One of Tompkins' major figures was Louis L'Amour, a writer whom I need hardly tell you I had been, as a specialist in non-dramatic literature of the English Renaissance, far too grand to read. In belated homage to Jack Parker, with whom I taught at Rare Book School for many years and who shared his hometown origins with Louis L'Amour, and under Jane Tompkins' baleful influence, I pick up one of L'Amour's novels and read it. It wasn't bad. In fact, it was good. I remained amazed and thought I might try another Western. And because I happened to have an unread copy of the signet paper back in the house and thought I might as well give Tompkins a test with a book she had not written about, I read The Oxbow Incident. Good read, good book, better than I'd expected, far richer as an experience than the movie. I put it down, thought, well, I know what that's about, and turned to something non-Western. Putting Clark's novel back on the shelf, I remembered that I hadn't read Walter Prescott Webb's afterward and paused to read it. Here was another 
but this one a far less pleasant surprise. Webb told me that I had completely misunderstood Clark's book. I found this news very dispiriting. Clark tells a story that looks pretty simple. A couple of cowhands descend from the eastern slopes of the Sierra Nevada, where they have spent the winter keeping an eye on a herd of cattle. They head for town and the bar. No sooner do they settle in than word comes that a neighboring rancher has been killed, his cattle stolen. Rustling, as any red-blooded American moviegoer knows, is not an admired outdoor sport in the Old West. Murder is also frowned upon. Pretty soon, a posse forms to hunt down the rustlers. Our two cowhands join up. Off they all go, and sure enough, in almost no time at all, they happen upon three men with cattle belonging to the murdered rancher. Why waste time? Guilt is obvious. The three men they found have no bill of sale. Their guns have been used. The cattle have the murdered rancher's brand. So, despite their protestations of innocence and a few mealy-mouthed words about due process and the finality of the death penalty from a character who presciently foreshadows Illinois Governor George Ryan, the posse eventually strings the three men right up in the eshed spirit of the current president-unelect. The deed done, the posse heads back to town. But whom, surprise, do they immediately meet? Why, it's the dead rancher. Not dead. Not murdered. His cattle sold properly. Bill of sale. Who needs such paperwork? This is the West, where a man's word is his bond, right? Well, wrong. And, oh dear. But, oh dears, are not going to bring the three innocent dead men back to life. The posse's ringleader, a singularly unappetizing specimen of self-righteous hypocrisy, feels most distraught and does some unpleasant things to atone for his misdeeds. Our two cowhands are left to offer choric reflections on what they, and we, have learned from the experience. So what have we learned from it? What I thought the book was about, before I read Webb, was this, Stay the Hell Out of European Wars. Published in 1940, the Oxbow Incident is, I had witlessly thought, an America first tract, pure and simple. The posse is, as it were, an allegory of the American expeditionary force charging off to make the world safe for cattle ranchers. But the quarrel it is entering, such as it is, is a quarrel the posse doesn't understand and should never have got mixed up in. Innocent people suffer, lives are wantonly wasted, bystanders are injured, perpetrators feel guilt. The lessons of World War I, simple and of extreme current relevance. Europe's wars are for Europeans. Americans ought to stay out. In 1940, I had thought this was a tenable point of view, although not, as it happens, one that survived in good odor for very long. By 1941, on December 7th, 1941, to be precise, it suddenly became quite an unfashionable point of view. Most of us, if we know anything about America first and pre-war isolationism, associate it with Joseph Kennedy, 
Charles Lindbergh and their ilk, anti-Semites, fascist sympathizers, and outright Nazis who thought that Hitler would win the coming war and also often thought that he should win the coming war. But really, there's no reason for me to be telling you any of this misreading. Webb's afterward, after all, told me that I had got the entire thing backwards. Sure, this Western really is a book about Clark's own world, teetering on the brink of World War II as he wrote it, and in Europe and Asia, if not yet in the United States, in World War II by the time it appeared in print in October of 1940. I got that part right. But it is not, in America first, not an isolationist book at all. It's profoundly interventionist, profoundly anti-Nazi. Webb, like the book's earliest reviewers in 1940, read the book as figuring forth the sort of mob psychology that permitted the Nazis their rise to power. The posse is a mob. Its pro-lynching leaders manipulate this mob for their own ends. What Clark has done, masterfully, is coolly and calmly to translate the Nazi menace for the sake of clarity from the messy contemporary world of the late 30s and very early 40s to the spare, stark Nevada of the 1880s, where its true lineaments are obvious to the view. Well, so much for me as a reader of Westerns. Not only is Webb an eminent historian himself, but also, lest any doubting Thomas wonder what gives him such insight into this book, he's gone straight to the horse's mouth then still open and talking for confirmation. Clark, responding to Webb's inquiry, told him that the book was written in 1937 and 38, a time when the whole world was getting increasingly worried about Hitler and the Nazis. Reviewers saw it as something approaching an allegory of the unscrupulous and brutal Nazi methods and as a warning against the dangers of temporizing and of hoping to oppose such a force with reason argument, and the democratic approach. In addition, Clark continued, it was a kind of American Nazism that I was talking about. I feared the ever-present element in any society which can always be led to act the same way, to use authoritarian methods to oppose authoritarian methods. Clearly, I could hardly have got this novel more wrong. Chagrined, I did now put the book back on the shelf and wondered how I could imagine myself a trained reader of literature if I could screw up a simple story such as this one so badly and so completely. And then, because in addition to being a fairly voracious reader, I am also an extremely arrogant one, and chewed like a dog at his bone on this error, I began to wonder just how stupid a reader I am. The more I pondered my error, the more I wondered how mistaken I was. If the people in Clark's posse resemble Nazis after all, they resemble very unusual ones. They rampage through no public streets breaking glass, burning books, or beating up bystanders. They appear to subscribe to certain legalistic forms even if they lack any sense of their substance. 
They are not indiscriminately harmful, but make an effort, however flawed, to weigh what they regard as evidence. Most importantly, they seek to avenge specific crimes, rustling, murder, without regard to the perpetrator's racial or ethnic identities. Thus, they lynch with equal pleasure a Mexican and two Anglo-Americans, one old, one young. Then they seek to restore the stolen property, the cattle, to the heirs of its rightful owner. It is true that such punctiliousness and substanceless obeisance to the empty forms of legality have also been ascribed to the Nazis, but only since the war. Perhaps only since Hannah Arendt's 1963 Eichmann in Jerusalem. In the 1930s, when Clark was writing, <coughs> excuse me, Kristallnacht, mass book burnings, and most of all, mass public rallies would have combined to make Nazi mob psychology appear far more monstrous to a concerned political American political imagination than anything conveyed by Clark's posse, terrible as it is. That posse does make a plausible analogy, however, if viewed as a small-scale recollection of America's armed intervention in World War I. Such an analogy works in the atmosphere of the late 1930s and also clarifies the cultural work that Clark hopes his novel can accomplish. Whatever has been happening out on the range, the men in Canby's bar, where our two cowhands are sitting, know it only through rumor and hearsay. Our two cowhands have left the mountains for a milieu where tensions are already running high because of the rustling that has been going on in the region. But little hard information about it is available. Tensions are perhaps even higher than they might have been were the precise dimensions of what seems to be happening or the identity of the responsible parties known to anyone. But neither of these is known, and without recognizing the limits of their so-called knowledge, the men in the saloon are provoked by an undocumented report of new rustling and a murder to intervene angrily, ignorantly, incorrectly, and fatally in the lives of the men they encounter. Only as they ride blithely homeward do they encounter a contradictory version of truth. A little American history follows at this point in my story. One needs to remember that not everyone agreed that America's intervention in World War I had been a good thing, nor was everyone who had doubts a closet enthusiast for the Kaiser. Randolph Byrne and John Reed were two leftist public intellectuals highly critical of American involvement in the war. They didn't like the Kaiser any better. They thought that America's involvement affected and others like them also agreed with this point of view, civil and cultural values at home. That involvement took a huge physical and emotional toll, even on those soldiers who survived their combat experience. The resultant peace fulfilled none of Stanton, Virginia's President Woodrow Wilson's idealistic hopes. The war benefited armaments and financial interests for whose profits 
ordinary men and women, in this view, paid the price. The horrors of which Germany's war machine was thought guilty, for example, the rape of Belgium, turned out to be a tribute to Britain's wartime propaganda efforts, not to Hun brutality. Complementarily, and equally distastefully, the nobility of the Allies' war aims might have been just a teensy-weensy bit exaggerated. Not just leftists, but many Americans grew acutely disillusioned with the experience of the war and Wilson's grandly idealistic approach to prosecuting it. This disillusionment grew rather than faded with time. Memoirs, histories, articles, and most of all, and most of what we'd be familiar with, literary works, flooded the 1920s. They prepared the way for a strong wave of general revulsion when, in the later 1930s, it began to seem likely that Americans would once again be called to serve in yet another European conflict, this one almost certainly likely to be far worse than the last. I began to suspect that Webb, not I, was the poor reader of Clark's novel, and my story now becomes one of what we in the trade sometimes laughingly call research. I wanted to find evidence that would demonstrate first to myself that I was not the fool Webb had made me think I was. Then, as my studies continued, I tried to understand why Webb's misreading, as I still think it to be, was so pervasive. Webb, when he wrote his afterward in 1960, was following in what by then were fairly well-worn steps, and his view is, in fact, now the common orthodoxy about Clark's novel. Research, alas, makes for dull stories. I suppose I could tell you about driving from Berkeley to Reno, where Clark's papers are held at the end of June, through a raging and terrifying blizzard in the high Sierra. In June, this unreconstructed New Yorker thought, or about using the Random House papers at Columbia University, or when it finally dawned on me that I was, after all, at the University of Virginia with some regularity, the Waller Barrett collection here at UVA, reading my way through whatever scraps of paper Clark might have left behind. I could tell you about reading books, about isolationists and America Firsters, about Clark, about containment theory during the Cold War period, and about the Western. These stories would not be very exciting. The depiction of an aging man sitting on his tuchus reading books or manuscripts lack, shall we say, the sort of vivacity a good story requires. What I did find was a story about the ways a novel can get read and misread, especially when, dealing with issues of currency, it hits the right political button. I also found a story about the peculiar ways in which memory functions when scholars try to situate the works they are studying in their specific historical setting. Peculiarities enhanced if the issues at work in the pl at play in the works then remain in play in the scholars now. And I found a story that, it seems to me, illuminates as clearly as any story I know what it is 
we mean when, as historians of the book, we try to think about how books get received. Reception, appropriation. This is a concept that is very, very difficult to deal with. Yet an enormous amount of book history depends on reception for which evidence is usually a lot less hard, a lot less clear than the physical evidence upon which historical bibliography normally builds. Webb, in 1960, quotes Clark himself in support of his thesis. Why, if I am right, should Clark himself have written to Webb the things he wrote about his anti-Nazi novel? More history, I fear, is necessary. For example, memories of anti-interventionists in the late 1930s, America firsters, isolationists, tend to neglect the broad appeal of such movements. Not only right-wingers, whether pro-Nazi or not, but also left-wingers, indeed the American Communist Party itself, shared such views, shared them at least for a while simultaneously. And if an anti-Semite like Lindbergh was a member of America first, so too was Lessing J. Rosenwald, a famous book and art collector and quite Jewish. Yet it remains an effort of the imagination to suppose that those who opposed America's involvement in World War II were not crypto-Nazis. The 1930s were rather ruthlessly rewritten after World War II ended when, in a new era of cold rather than hot war, America's enemy had become not Germany but the Soviet Union, a country that some of you I'm sure will remember. In this changed climate, to suppose, even to remember, that people of whom we might otherwise have approved could have objected, in fact, did object to such a good thing as fighting the Nazi menace, might have made it necessary to reconsider objections from the then contemporary lunatic fringe who doubted the wisdom of basing an entire post-war political military ecology on containment of the Red Menace. To have considered seriously and in their full complexity the objections of people who had been unenthusiastic about America's participation in a war whose essential rightness after the fact everyone was thought to agree with might have posed questions too close to the bone for 1950s Cold Warriors. Viewed from within the context of an essentially agreed-upon perspective about the nature of communism, objectors to a policy of containment seem communists or fellow travelers. Just so must those who had objected to a war against Hitler have been Nazis or crypto-Nazis in the decades just past. Poor Clark, his novel never really had a chance. It was published in 1940 when America First, despite its publicity, was already losing more and more strength. 
Its author was not an anti-Semite. He was not someone who was in accord with a conservative or even reactionary attitudes a later period comfortably ascribed to those who opposed America's engagement with Hitler. The novel was almost immediately and very easily appropriated by members of a predominantly liberal literary establishment who, through their direction of or access to national reviewing and publicity organs, mediated its public reception. Highly conscious of and most frequently highly opposed to the Nazis, these people, in effect, rewrote Clark by reading his point as if it were their own. It isn't just a Western, wrote Joseph Henry Jackson in the October 11, 1940 San Francisco Chronicle. Ditto Sterling North in the October 10 Chicago Daily Mail, calling the Oxbow incident the history of our times told in parable the crack-up of civilization foreshadowed in a single lynching in the 1880s. North specifically cites the rise of Adolf Hitler as one of the book's moral issues. Strang Lawson, a Colgate professor of English in a radio broadcast on March 23, 1941, called the book a shrewd study of the psychology of mass violence. To be sure, these were not the only possible readings of the book. Thomas Lask, a reviewer for the New York Times, told me in a 1992 conversation that he remembered the book as an anti-agrarian work and as an allegory not about the European situation but about, about American racism. The Western lynching of three supposed rustlers was, he thought, a simple displacement for what in the 1940s remained a persistent scandal in the American South and a persistent concern of Northern liberals. Lewis Gannett, writing in the New York Herald Tribune on October 9, 1940, confirms what by the time he was telling it to me was Lask's 52-year-old memory. The novel, he writes in 1940, bears a vague relation to the dilemma of a world faced with Adolf Hitler, but lynching suggests the South. I might add that in notes for a talk that he delivered late in the 1950s at San Francisco State College, Clark himself recalled that screenings of the 1943 version were stoned in the South. Obviously, the lynching references did seem to have domestic as well as international repercussions to more than last in 1992 and Lewis Gannett in 1940. But it was the book's appropriation to the European conflict that won the day. And specifically, its appropriation to a view of that conflict as one with which Americans must engage. This is not a view that Clark himself unambiguously shared. In manuscript notes from 1954, he is quite skeptical about Wilson and 14 points, world safe for democracy, yet Clemenceau and Lord jo Lloyd George triumphant, preparing Nazi Germany. Much more suggestive, because contained in very early manuscripts, is Clark's unpublished poetry, the bulk of which predates American entry into World War II. In memoriam, 20 years after, occasioned by Armistice Day, Armistice Day 
reflects ironically on the horrible deaths experienced by American soldiers during World War I. We really take a social risk in thinking this man who we think he is. We had no proof except a spattered disc discovered with an arm we thought was his. Other poems in the same volume reveal Clark as extremely skeptical, skeptical about the European conflicts of his childhood and now his young manhood. In 1940, however, as the country moved ever closer to involvement in an anti-Nazi war, how could a young high school teacher from, upstate, from an upstate New York resort town, he, he was raised in Nevada, his father, before becoming the librarian at Columbia University in New York, had been the president of the University of Nevada, but had a falling out with the trustees there, and his good friend Nicholas Murray Butler found him the job as librarian at Columbia. So that though Clark had been raised in Nevada, he was also a New Yorker, and at the time he wrote the novel, he was teaching in a high school in Casanova, New York. How could this young high school teacher from Casanova, enjoying warm welcome, high praise, and strong sales for his first novel, venture to correct those reviewers upon whom his success depended? Can anyone imagine him saying that if only they read his book from a slightly different angle, they might notice that although it was certainly a political allegory, it argued an altogether different point from the point they thought it argued, one that moreover most of them would have hated. Any option to make such an argument was certainly removed in the wake of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and at that time, Clark himself tried to enlist, although he was sent back to teaching. After the war, to have attempted to reorient the way in which his first novel was read would have required Clark to restate an opposition to a war that it was now impossible to have opposed. By then, he himself may no longer have opposed it. The real horrors perpetrated by the Nazis turned out to have no relation to the propaganda horrors ascribed to the Kaiser's troops, and one can also recall here that the soldiers of Imperial Japan were not, generally speaking, thought to have behaved very much better. Worse, if Clark had asserted his objections to American intervention in World War II, calling into question his patriotism about that conflict, he might have appeared to be providing grounds for questions which were, as it turns out, doubtful about his attitudes towards the Cold War. Not, some of you will remember, an exceptionally prudent course in the hysterical atmosphere of the late 1940s and 1950s. Part of the story I'm trying to reimagine, to retell, must also be the effect of this experience on Clark himself. His explanation to Webb dominates discussion of the novel because of the success of the Signet Classic reprint and Webb's afterward in that volume. In fact, however, it isn't the only explanation for his novel that Clark was to write. In 1962, for a Time magazine reprint of the novel, he explained it in part with a comparison between the three lynched cowboys and the three crosses on Golgotha, adding that he sought to imitate the structure of a three-act tragedy. 
in an undated draft letter, which the staff at the University of Nevada, Reno, date after 1962, for an Italian language translation, Clark remarks that the incident wasn't a European one, whatever parallels might be drawn. And Tetley, the, the person who in the novel argues, let's just string them up, Tetley wasn't Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, or Franco. I was far more concerned to say it can happen here too than I was to say anything specific about any European nation. These three discussions for the Italian 1962 translation, for Time magazine in 1962, and for Walter Prescott Webb are not necessarily inconsistent. They do, however, suggest much more than merely slight variations of emphasis. They leave room for interrogation, and they suggest something that I find elsewhere in Clark as well, that is, a persistent unease whenever he is asked to pin down interpretation of his books, all of them, not just the Oxbow incident. I have come to think that he fears that what gets pinned down may prove to be inaccurate. Moreover, his struggles to continue writing, the relative paucity of his output after the early success of the Oxbow incident, also seems to me indicative. Despite the apparent success of that first novel, only two more novels and a book of short stories follow. These are produced with considerable difficulty and themselves are followed by very long silence. Scattered occasional pieces and the labors of scholarly editing in the field of Nevada history are all that emerge from his later years. It seems to me within the bounds of reasonable conjecture to see this slightness of output and chariness of interpretation as characteristics of someone who has come to mistrust both the reception and the understanding of his work. Trying to make misinterpretation difficult while he is writing proves to make literary production increasingly difficult for him. After the work has been finished, he avoids anything that might appear to cooperate with the misinterpretation process. His son, who by the way, for those of you who don't know this, and at least somebody here is from, Nevada, from Montana, is an archivist in Montana. His son and a friend both note his permeating discontent, although neither can wholly account for it. Long endurance of widespread misunderstanding of his work, however, offers one possible and, I would argue, plausible explanation. Now, I've presented this story as a case study in the complexities of book history. I suspect that it must seem not that at all, but rather a reading and a deliberately heterodox reading at that of a minor work of fiction. I agree that it's a heterodox reading of Clark's novel, though I happen to think that my heterodoxy is better than their orthodoxy. But I think that what my story also tells is very much a tale about book history. The physical evidence of the Oxbow incident, 
The differences between the Random House edition in its various printings and the several later reprints, the illustrations, the various prefaces or comments that Clark appends to one edition or another, all these might make for an interesting study in mid-century American book production. Sales figures, the correspondence concerning Serfs and Clark's efforts to get the novel taken up by the Book of the Month Club. There's some fascinating correspondence with Dorothy Canfield Fisher. A bit of this stuff survives at Columbia University, where the Random House archives are held. This would be at least equally interesting as a study of how books were marketed in mid-century. But these are tales for which other books would serve just as well. What I've tried to suggest about this book is that there's an altogether different story to tell. Although this story is less clear and tougher to document than the others might be, and I should simply confess that in all of the Clark manuscripts that I've looked at, I have found no smoking gun in which he simply says, no, this is what I meant. Nonetheless, I've found an enormous amount more than I've quoted in this version to suggest somebody for whom the whole notion of involvement in a European war is anathema. This story may be tougher to document than the others. It nonetheless sheds light on the ways in which this book was read and received and, I think, on the later career of its writer. It suggests how subject to sheer chance and misprision a book may be for whatever success it achieves when it hits the streets. It suggests how crippling the early experience of success for what he thinks are the wrong reasons might prove to the later development of a young writer. And it suggests how varied and how complicated are the contexts that might need to be considered in trying to think about the ways books are received. Books have a physical existence, to be sure. Terry spoke last night about Rare Book School as a place where the container is what's emphasized. And somebody quoted me to myself, either last night or today, on the subject of containers as well. I don't quibble in any way with the notion that it is the history of their physical existence that book historians rightly concentrate on. But books have a social and even a political existence as well. That history can affect how they are read, how many people and which people read them, how they come to understand and talk about them, whom they talk about them with, and thus how they sell, and how their authors feel about their success or failure. That history, for most books, remains to be written. Thank you.